Thanks for that reading. And um, Lucas, we'll get the first Bible reading up so people can go back. I think it was 795 or something. Uh, that's what we're looking at today. Um, uh, two little stories that Jesus told that really pack um, a big punch. And they're all about how to find real treasure. And um, I don't know if you know, you've know you noticed in our culture, but it seems to be that uh, this is a time of spiritual seeking. There are a lot of people who are uh, seeking for uh, meaning and truth. And I think uh, a lot of the kind of cultural confusion that we've been going through and even the experience of uh, COVID has caused a lot of people to, to be uh, seeking and searching for something um, bigger and deeper. Uh, if you haven't looked at it already, I sent out a- an article uh, with what's new in the, the weekly email uh, with, with an article from uh, an academic called Ayan Hersey Ali. Had anyone heard of her before I sent uh, that out? Oh, it's a shame. She's, she's got a really great um, story. She It's a fascinating story. She's written an article in the past week called Why I Am Now a Christian. And she grew up in Somalia. She's from Somalia. She grew up as a very strict and devout Muslim, and then she moved to the Netherlands, and she then became a very devoted new atheist. She is well known. She's popular. She's really good friends with the likes of Richard Dawkins and Christopher, the late Christopher Hitchens, and she was a, became a devout New, new atheist, but then in the last week she's written this article, Why I Am Now a Christian. And there seem to be quite a few people like Ayan Hirsi Ali who have been on this um, search. And, and certainly for her, as an academic at Stanford uh, University in California, it has been this um, amazing cultural confusion that we're swimming in that has spurred her on uh, to dig deeper, even from the uh, the new atheism, to find what is truth and what is meaning. And so this morning we're asking the question, well, how do you find, how do you find real treasure for all those seekers? And even uh, in the story, someone who's not even seeking, how do you find real treasure? And that's what these two stories that Jesus tells are all about. And we're going to go through them and I want to make some observations about what I see, um, similar Similarities that I see between these uh, two short stories that Jesus uh, tells. But first, uh, some historical context um, for these stories. One commentator points out that um, back in ancient times, there, there were no such thing as banks and there were no such thing as safety deposit boxes. And so um, uh, in a time of war where there were um, raiders or, or wartime, um, what they would do if they forced a sudden escape is that people buried their treasures often in jars of clay. If that rings any bells for those of you, 2 Corinthians 4, they put their treasure and they buried them in jars of clay. And um, if the people who fled never came back, um, like refugees sometimes don't, then the treasure was lost until somebody just happened to stumble upon the treasure that was buried. And so um, Palestine, ancient Palestine, it was littered with this kind of treasure because there were no banks, no safety deposit boxes. And so Jesus tells quite a realistic story about what could actually happen in those times. In verse 44, the kingdom of heaven, he says, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. 
Now notice it was in his joy. It was with joy, unspeakable joy, where he went and he had to liquidate everything. He, he had to gather up enough capital to be able to get this treasure, which meant he had to liquidate all of his assets. Can you imagine doing that, liquidating everything? In other words, this guy, he had to become dirt poor in order to become filthy rich. And he was more than happy for the exchange. Uh, the second story that Jesus tells is similar to the first, except instead of treasure this time, it's a pearl that he finds. Um, now, uh, today, uh, in our day and age, it's all about diamonds. But back then, it was all about pearls. So, for example, Cleopatra had a pearl that was valued, obviously not the same time, but this is just by way of example. Uh, she had a pearl valued at 25 million denarii, which is one denarii is one day's wage, 25 million days' wages. Can you imagine that worth in today's currency? It's billions and billions of dollars. She had this pearl that was worth so much. Just by way of example, that I looked up the most expensive jewel known today is the Hope Diamond, and it's worth $250 million, which actually pales to almost not much compared to the pearl that Cleopatra had. And this is exactly the kind of pearl that this merchant in the story that Jesus tells finds. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this pearl. Uh, he was wealthy, he knew pearls, he was an expert when it came to pearls, but when he came across this pearl, he has to go and liquidate everything. He was, he was rich and he had to sell his most precious things, but he doesn't care because he's found this pearl of great price. Now, let's be clear, Jesus is not telling a story about best business practice uh, he's not telling a story about how to do business in these days. No, this is uh, a parable. It's an extended metaphor that's uh, giving us the main point, which is this. The kingdom of God is so precious that losing everything you have on earth but gaining the kingdom is a happy exchange. The kingdom of heaven is worth so much that losing everything that you have on earth in order to gain the kingdom is a happy and joyful exchange. It is so worthy. So let me now point out a few things that I notice as we go through uh, the story because there are some similarities. And the first one is that each of these men has an epiphany. They have an awakening. They have their eyes open to the immeasurable worth of something that when other people look at it, it, it's for some reason hidden from their sight. But as they look at it, they see that is something of infinite and immeasurable worth. Uh, I've got to say, uh, in our, our culture, uh, being a, a preacher or a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader is not very uh, high up on the kind of pecking order or the or the career ladder. You know, if you say, yeah, I'm a Sunday school teacher, uh, or I lead a Bible study, or I'm a preacher, sort of speaking from experience, it's not particularly high up on uh, the, the, the career ladder or the pecking order. But I believe what was said at King Charles's coronation a few months ago, as they handed him a holy Bible, and they said to him, receive this book, the most valuable thing 
the world office. There it is, hidden in plain sight. This treasure that when some people look at it, may as well be trash. But for these men in the story, they have this epiphany. Their eyes are open to this thing that is of infinite and immeasurable worth. Notice firstly that they have an epiphany. Their eyes are opened. But secondly, another thing is that they realise that there's no halfway measures to get this treasure. Uh, There's no try before you buy. There's no sitting on the fence. This is all or nothing, isn't it? They have to sell everything. They have to liquidate their most precious possessions, things that were dear to them, things that I've had this since I was two years old. I've had this from generations. They've all got to go. It's a pile on the metaphors. They can't have a bet both ways. Uh, They've got to put all their eggs in one basket. It's all or nothing. There's no halfway. But thirdly, notice that they're more than happy to make the sacrifice because of what they stand to gain. What they get pays way more than what it costs, infinitely more than whatever it is that it costs. And did you notice in the first story that, that he doesn't make the sacrifice and then receive joy? What's the order in the story? First, there's joy at seeing this immeasurable treasure. And then there's sacrifice. Verse 44, when a man found the treasure, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had. Now, just another thing to clarify about the kingdom of heaven is that uh, this is not something that you buy. It's not teaching us that, that the kingdom of heaven is something that you buy. Actually, a few chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 5, the opening uh, beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor ain't buying nothing. So what is it then? Well... Uh, the, the, the point is that there's a massive difference between receiving and achieving. Uh, I like this uh, metaphor from Tim Keller. When, when you think about when you turn a light switch on the wall, the light goes on and it seems as if the switching of the, the, the turning of the switch turns the light on. But actually, that's not what turns the light on, is it? It's actually the flow of electricity that turns the light on. And if there was no flow of electricity, then the switching would be completely useless. You could turn it as much as you liked. So the light switch, in a sense, receives the power, but it's the flow of the electricity that turns the light on. And and this is one of the most important distinctions in Christian theology, that that there is something that you have to do to receive the kingdom. But in a sense, the something is nothing. You have to admit that you've got nothing and come to Jesus. But there is nothing you can do to achieve the kingdom. Uh, As Paul says in, in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith of the empty hands that come to Jesus to receive the gift of the kingdom. 
As I reflected about this story, these two stories, I thought, actually, the Apostle Paul is a great example of what happens in these parables in at least three ways. Um, His testimony is the testimony of these um, parables, these treasures. So um, think about it. Uh, Firstly, uh, the Apostle Paul, if you know his story, he wasn't looking for treasure when he found it. What was he doing for those who know the story of Saul. He was actually, well, in a sense, he was looking for treasures, but it was to kill them, to put them in prison and to kill them, right? He was on his way to persecute Christians. But on his way, without looking, he found an immeasurable treasure, the Damascus Road experience. The risen Lord Jesus appeared to him and he found treasure without even looking for it. Another way that he seems to be like uh, the men in this parable is that uh, he was a man who was extremely wealthy, maybe not in financial terms, but I wish we'd read the first bit before in Philippians 3 where we find out about his um, amazing status as a person in that world, his um, education and his his race. He lists it off in Philippians 3 about um, how eminent he was and how highly regarded, highly respected he was. But then in Philippians um, 8, he says, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He was willing to trash it all. So imagine some eminent scholar at UWA or whatever university, Yale, um, at a graduation with all of the robed academics and, and everyone and the graduation ceremony. And they get up and they say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and who died for sin who rose again, who is coming back to judge the earth, and those who put their trust in him will be saved. Can you picture that scene? The Apostle Paul says, I count it all as rubbish, my reputation, my everything, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Uh, There's another way I think that Paul is like these uh, people in the story. Uh, And and that is the fact is that uh, most of the time, uh, whenever anyone enters the kingdom of God, they actually have no idea what they're getting themselves into. And uh, the the Apostle Paul was the same, actually. Um, Around his conversion story, uh, he was blind and and he was waiting, he was fasting after he encountered Jesus. And God um, speaks to Ananias, a Christian, to go and visit him. And it's interesting, one of the things that God says to Ananias, he says to Ananias, I will show him, Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Not, I have shown him how much he must suffer. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul has found this immeasurably, infinitely worthy treasure. And in a sense, he has got no idea what he's getting himself into. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so for us, it eventually begins to dawn on us and we begin to realize that what it means to enter the kingdom of God is that we actually have to go and sell everything. In other words, everything in your life you need to look at and you say, nothing is more important to me than Jesus. If it's a choice between having Jesus or having that, 
then Jesus wins every time. So, for example, if you're never willing to admit that you're a Christian amongst non-Christian peers or friends, then, then that actually means that you probably have something that's more important to you than Jesus. What is it? It's your reputation. Your reputation is more important if you're unwilling ever to make that admission before others. And when push comes to shove, when given the choice, you put your reputation before... And we all do this. Please don't. I mean, we all do this, right? We, We lose sight of what a treasure Jesus is. If you're unwilling to put that reputation to death, to sacrifice it, then you have something that's more important to you than Jesus. Now, you could say this about any number of things. I think of some of the music that I threw in the bin when I first came to Christ. I could go on and on and on about the things that um, I had trade to have Jesus in my life. You could say this about your money, about your time, I think is a massive idol, having time to spend to ourselves, or, or about your sexuality. Uh, if you say, well, I'm willing to follow Jesus, but... If in order to have him near to me in my life, I have to do this with my money or I have to do that with my time or I have to do this with my sexuality, then forget it. Then what you're saying is that you're not willing to sell everything because Jesus isn't worth it. He is not the pearl of great price. He is not of infinite and immeasurable worth. But As I was thinking about it, I thought, thank God that he doesn't feel that way when he looks at me. Thank God that while I was still sinning, not exactly a precious pearl of great price. You think of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, covered in mud and pig. But when he looked at me, he valued and cherished me so much to give his life. As the Apostle Paul says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And it's in light of this sacrifice for us that we offer ourselves to him. Jesus says, freely you have received, freely now give. At the end of our service, if you look at the blue um, sheet in your order of service, one of the last things we often say is we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. And this could mean different things for different people. So one example is uh, a guy called Archbishop Romero of El Salvador. On uh, March 24, 1980, he was holding a funeral for one of his close friends uh, who had Uh, lost her life. The government had murdered her because of her faith in Christ. And Archbishop Romero invited all who were present at this gathering to follow this Jesus who died, who laid down his life for others, this pearl of great price. And during communion in the service, he held up the bread and he said, may this body that was broken and this flesh that was sacrificed for humankind also nourish us so that we can give our bodies and our blood to suffer and pain, suffering and pain as Christ did, not for our own sake, but to bring justice and peace to our people. And moments later, a gunshot echoed throughout the chapel. Archbishop Romero fell to the ground and within moments he was dead. But the Lord Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, he must 
deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If anyone wants to save their life, they will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. Now, thankfully, it's unlikely in our context that we're going to have to offer ourselves in that way as martyrs for Christ, but there are so many different ways that this can happen. And another story is the story of what this looks like for Vaughan Roberts. Uh, and, And he's a rector, he's an Anglican minister at Oxford at St. Ebbs in England. He's been there for 30 years. And this is how he tells his story. And as I share the story, just try to See if you can catch all of the overtones. There are so many of this story of the treasure in the field. He says, I was raised in a nominally Anglican family, but found Christianity irrelevant and dull, just like the treasure hidden, until I read Matthew's gospel in my last few months at school. I hadn't been searching, so it was a surprise to find myself confronted by the beauty and arresting power of Christ's life and teaching. Somehow I knew that my life could never be the same again. And after a brief period of private struggle, I began to follow him. I knew instinctively that coming to Christ involved repentance, not just turning to him, but also turning away from old ways of thinking and living. That wasn't easy not least relationally, as some friends couldn't accept the change in me. But the Spirit had given me a deep awareness of Christ's lordship and his love for me, and I wanted to please him in all areas of life, whatever the cost, and that included my sexuality. As a young Christian, I understood both from my own reading of the Bible and from teaching I received that the place for sex was in heterosexual marriage. That was challenging for all of my new Christian friends. But I sensed that there was likely to be a greater cost for me, given that I found it hard to imagine ever being married to a woman. I had experienced some attraction to girls, but that largely faded by the time of my conversion and was soon to disappear completely. I'm grateful that I was taught at that time about the goodness, not just of marriage, but also of singleness, whether chosen or not. There have been certainly some very hard times in the years since, but I have never regretted my decision to follow Christ. And get this, he says, the joys of Christian discipleship have far outweighed the sorrows. And as many discover, the greatest joys have often come in and through the greatest struggles, including for me in the areas of sexuality. Do you hear what he says? The joys of Christian discipleship have far outweighed the sorrows. Well, I don't know about you, but there have been so many times in my life where I have thought, and most recently this week, I've thought to myself, Lord, I didn't sign up for this. But either before I can get all of the words out or before I can get any of the words out, the call of Christ comes to my mind. 
Kieran, this is exactly what you signed up for, to take up your cross daily, to deny yourself and to follow him. I can see people nodding and smiling. You're the same. This isn't what I signed up for. Oops, it's exactly what I signed up for. And so just like the disciples and Peter in John 6, when Jesus is saying these incredibly hard things, you can read the story, and the crowds are leaving Jesus in their droves because it's just too hard. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And do you know what Peter says? He was always the one to pipe up. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. To whom else will we go? Jim Elliot was another great missionary who gave his life for the cause of the gospel. And I love what he says. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Hear that today. She is no fool who gives up what she cannot keep to gain what she cannot lose. And so I want to finish this morning with a story from C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia that I think captures perfectly what we're talking about today, that, that this an unavoidable decision that faces all of us here this morning. And he, as C.S. Lewis so often does, captures it in a story. It's about uh, a schoolgirl called Jill Pole. And she goes to a stream for a drink. But uh, at the side of the stream, she sees a large lion. And so she stops. Uh, the lion tells her, uh, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Jill hesitates. The lion, sensing her hesitation, asks, Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. Will you come to Jesus today? He stands ready to receive you. And he is of infinite and immeasurable worth. 
Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to see your infinite and immeasurable worth. Lord, for anyone here this morning who's standing at the crossroads, who you're asking to sell something off in order to have Jesus, would you reveal to them and help them to say, like Paul, I count it all as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for those who are in the pain of having sold something, would you comfort and console them by your spirit with your infinite and immeasurable worth today? Come, Holy Spirit. Help us to see how small a thing it is we've been asked to sell in comparison to what you are and what you have. As you say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. So come, Lord Jesus, and fill our hearts today that we would overflow with joy for what it is that we have in you. Comfort us, strengthen us, and encourage us, we pray. Amen.